Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to tell you about how you can help Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall, no subscription model. We want everyone to be able to read our commentary and listen to our podcasts. And that's why we will be staying free. And you can help us to do that by making a donation. To those of you who already donate, thank you very much. We really couldn't do what we do without you. To those thinking of donating, how about doing it today? The best kind of donation is a regular monthly one. Donating as little as £5 a month can make a huge difference to what we do. So if you'd like to join the band of people who help to keep Spiked free and thriving, just go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. And now, on with the show. The shift in the core votes of the two main parties it hasn't happened for no reason. It's not a it's not just a strange coincidence. It's actually happening right across the West. It's happening partly because I think of the way left-wing politics is changing. Uh, you know, the left is, is rejecting the, the sense of community and national solidarity that many of its former voters, its its white working class voters, celebrate. And that's actually driven them to centre-right parties. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Nick Timothy. Nick is a former political advisor, a writer and one of Britain's leading conservative thinkers. He was joint chief of staff at Downing Street during Theresa May's prime ministership. He resigned following the general election of 2017, in which May lost her majority. Before that, he was a special advisor at the Home Office and a director of the New Schools Network, a charity which supports the setting up of free schools in the UK. Nick is a keen supporter of Brexit, and he has been described as a key proponent of a more compassionate, community-based conservatism. In his book, Remaking One Nation, Conservatism in an Age of Crisis, he makes his case against the ideological ultra-liberals who have come to dominate British politics and argues for community, solidarity and recognising our obligations to one another. I want to start off by asking you really to describe yourself because you get called all sorts <laughs> of things, most of them compl- most of them complimentary. You're a leftish conservative, you're a red Tory, you're a little bit blue Labour, even if you don't like to admit it. You're the, the, the Tory who criticises capitalism. There are lots of, as, as is the want in politics these days, there is an instinct to try and put people into pigeonholes that make 20th century sense, if not necessarily 21st century sense. So I thought I would give you the opportunity at the top of the conversation to tell us is there a political tag you apply to yourself or how do you describe yourself on the political spectrum? I think it's my personal tragedy that, that I'm not very easily pigeonholed. So uh, I always feel like the right of the Tory party think I'm a dangerous socialist and the left think <laughs> that I'm a crazed Brexiteer. So neither side quite wants me. I think I sort of attract labels like red Tory, blue Labour, post-liberal. There's sort of advantages and disadvantages to each of those. I mean, I think 
I've called my book Remaking One Nation because actually while the One Nation label is thrown around quite a lot in Tory politics, really its pedigree lies in the Tory tradition of trying to overcome division. It's sort of started off with Disraeli talking about the country descending into two nations between rich and poor. It was picked up by Baldwin in the 20s. It was then picked up again by a group of reforming MPs in the post-war period who came from no particular kind of ideological background. That group ranged from Ian McLeod to Enoch Powell. But I think One Nation is quite an important label because actually we do live in quite divided times. The country is divided in terms of inequality, in terms of regional differences, post-referendum between leave and remain. And actually, I, I talk about one nation, I think, because to me, one nation means that we've got to look past ideology and focus much more on trying to overcome those divisions. And I think you do that by not trying to shrink the state, not trying to sort of continually cut public spending, but to accept that there's a sort of harmonious balance that we're trying to strike between society on one hand government on the other and and sort of freedom and market on the sort of on the third uh, so you have this partnership of three between society government and market okay i want to talk to you a bit about of course the themes in your book and about the people or the institutions or the political outlooks that you consider to be the key barrier right now to the possibility of one nation to the possibility of social solidarity So one of the key targets in your book are the elite liberals, and I wanted to dig down into that a little bit. So you view liberalism as a way of thinking in which markets trump institutions, individualism trumps community, and group rights trump broader national identities. So am I right in thinking that you you view liberalism as not simply a right-wing phenomenon, but as a cross political phenomenon, which creates problems on both sides of the political divide. So on the right, it pushes them further and further towards a free market outlook. And on the left, it's pushing the left further and further towards a fragmentary, militant form of identity politics, which naturally grates against any possibility of a singular nation or any sense of social solidarity. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, I barely need to answer that. It was such a good summary of my argument. <laughs> what I say is I'm not railing against liberalism in sort of every sense of the word. What I try to do is describe liberalism in terms of concentric circles. So I say there's a, there's a core, which I call essential liberalism, which is the kind of liberalism that makes the Western way of life feasible. So it's, it's the things that make liberal democracy work, like checks and balances, an independent judiciary, the rule of law, you know, some legal rights for minorities, and so on, and also a market economy, because you know, economic freedom is related to personal freedom. And I think actually almost, you know, almost everybody apart from people at the real extremes tend to respect those things. But then the danger is that as liberalism becomes more ideological, it sort of unwittingly erodes those things. So then at the second circle, I describe elite liberalism, which is where, yes, you have sort of party political differences, but there's a kind of core of beliefs that politicians across the party spectrum tend to agree about. And and those views are also shared in some of the kind of elite institutions of the country, from the universities to the judiciary, to the civil service, to the BBC. And those tend to be about things like, you know, a lightly regulated labour market, the marketisation of public services sometimes, high immigration, 
and so on, and those views tend not to be shared by the majority of the public. But it's too simple to say that there's just a kind of elite liberal consensus, because obviously there is disagreement across the party spectrum in some respects, but there is still a connection to liberalism in those disagreements. So on the right, you tend to have uh, sort of market fundamentalists try to reduce every aspect of life to, to the market. They think that freedom, individual freedom is the preeminent uh, value that trumps others. And they mainly focus on the economy. And then on the left, you tend to have cultural liberals who, as you say, tend increasingly these days to obsess about militant identity politics. And the effect of the two is to create a kind of ratchet because one side tends not to repeal the liberalising measures of the other. They just focus on their own liberalising agendas. And so you have this kind of ratchet effect, which means that right and left are both contributing towards this kind of atomization in society and social and economic problems, which then, you know, perversely, if you're a member of the kind of ultra-liberal right, quite often leads to a bigger state as the state tries to fix those problems. I wanted to dig down on the liberalism question into one of the contradictions or one of the tensions. You argue that liberalism is a universalistic force. It has this tendency to disregard specific contexts, cultural specificity, historical specificity, and so on, and has this universalizing dynamic and a tendency to view the world as being fundamentally the same. The world should be like us or wants to be like us or at some point will be like us. But that grates against one of the other criticisms that can be made, of course, particularly of left liberalism, which is an almost obsessive focus on cultural identity or or particularly inherited identity and this constant fragmenting process whereby even identity groups are now breaking up into smaller and smaller and smaller identity groups. How do you work that contradiction out? Yeah, I think this is why you have to sort of try to break it down and cover sort of different aspects of ultra-liberalism. So I think the universalism of liberalism is a really important topic to just pause on for a second, because what I try to do in the book is I, I try to trace back some of the problems we've got today through the policies that have got us to where we are, back to the kind of philosophical premises that they're based on. And liberalism is universalistic, partly because its earliest philosophers imagined us in the state of nature where there's no kind of government at all and we come together and we form a social contract where we agree what rights we have and we agree what powers the state should have. And that's that. Now, of course, the state of nature never existed. We never sort of started off at this sort of year zero. Every generation is born with obligations towards others in the community and rights as a result of being a member of a community. So the kind of cultural context in which we're born and in which we interact with one another matters. But because liberalism has this assumption of universalism, it tends to disregard and even attack those kinds of cultural contexts. And you can see how that gets us into trouble all the time in terms of, you know, take foreign policy as an example. We supposed that at the end of the Cold War, a few elections and the privatisation of the old Soviet state would turn Russia into Sweden. We sort of assumed that Iraq and Afghanistan would just become liberal democracies after we invaded them because, well, you know, Afghans and Iraqis are just the same as us. Their cultural context doesn't matter. They just want to be like us and will inevitably do so because of this sort of progressivism and liberalism. And these things are sort of, I think, are fatal errors and quite dangerous. But you're quite right, I think, also to say that 
there is a tension between that and and what the kind of cultural liberals tend to argue and the way they they don't just sort of celebrate difference they almost want to sort of pitch people against one another on the basis of their identities and i think this is actually a bit of a perversion in in liberalism because i mean in the book what i say is that the roots of modern identity politics actually come from thinkers like foucault and postmodernists and then that thinking kind of leapt across the atlantic and were picked up by some of the sort of budding identity political theorists uh, in the states like Kimberly Crenshaw and actually those theories aren't actually related to classical liberalism but what liberals have done left liberals have done is is sort of co-opt those ideas and accept their premise and one of the problems we have with left liberals is we've talked about the problem with universalism and liberalism there's another one which is this sense of inevitable progress in it so so some liberals think that pluralism is a good thing because basically it's a way in which we can manage difference in quite complicated societies and that's a perfectly valid line of argument i think most of us in the modern world would would accept it but some liberals make the argument that pluralism is a good thing because the trial and error that it permits leads to an ever more perfect society and it's only on that ground that we should think that pluralism is a good thing and the danger with that is as soon as you believe that we are inevitably heading towards something that is progressively better it becomes your view of of the future and what should happen is seen as progress and anybody who disagrees with it is seen as standing against progress and is seen as representing things that are backward or irrational and i think that trait is very visible in today's left liberals and progressives following on from that i think one of the key problems in politics today which i see people like you and blue labor and red toryism and other interesting but very different movements i see you guys as trying to patch this issue up is that it does seem that there are really only two players in politics at the moment there's the individual and there's the global and so much of politics boils down to one or the other or in some instances a combination of the two so there is the cult of individual identity where we are constantly invited to define ourselves redefine ourselves understand ourselves almost entirely as individuals and then of course there is a huge amount of talk about the global the need for global institutions the need for global cooperation the fact that we all face these insurmountable crises and problems that can only be dealt with at the global level and of course the thing that is quite self-consciously left out of this is the great mediating force of political life which is the nation and community so do do you see in part the work that you've done both in terms of advising government and also in your writing as an attempt to rehabilitate the fields in which community life and political life used to be conducted prior to the rise of ultra liberals in this kind of obsessive focus either on fragmenting individualism or on a relentlessly globalizing field i think that's a fair way of putting it i mean i think liberalism tends to see individuals i think in the wrong way i mean you know back to the state of nature theorists they think of us as completely sort of autonomous freedom seeking individuals that 
if we do interact with others, it is to maximise our own opportunity or it's to if we're to compromise in any way it's only really to expand the scope of our own freedom and that's wrong we know we're not i think in the book i sort of say they they think of people as like snooker balls colliding with one another you know if you actually think about how we relate to one another you can only really understand your own identity in a social context you know if i'm in england then my identity as a brummy matters more because I'm distinguishing myself from people from London or Yorkshire or Lancashire or wherever. If I'm in Germany, I may just describe myself as English. If I'm in Asia, I may feel more European. We understand ourselves in the social contexts we're in and as we define ourselves against others. And that's a perfectly natural thing. Now, I think to some extent, I tried to do some of these things in government. But I think one of the difficulties of government is uh, you don't get very much time to think. You don't get very much time to read. So you're sort of relying on the sort of memory of things that you had come to understand several years before. And if there is a silver lining to being turfed out in the way that I was, it gives you quite a lot of space to, to think about the things you did right and wrong in government. But it also gives you space to really think and read and go and talk to people who have been considering these things for their whole lives and careers. And so and so I would definitely say, well, I think I was grappling with some of these things in government. My thinking is is more advanced now than it was then for sure. I want to come back to the question of government and and your turfing out in a moment. But um just to keep on the theme of where politics is going and what's happening to politics, I wanted to ask you you write about this in your book and you've written about it extensively elsewhere too, where Brexit fits into this discussion. Because the way I try to explain Brexit to people who are not necessarily very fond of it is that it was a desire for a greater sense of social solidarity, a greater sense of connection, a greater sense among people that they actually matter and their vote matters and that their community matters which is why I thought it was an incredibly important event in British political history. How do you see Brexit fitting, either disrupting the narrative that you've written about in terms of the rise of elite liberalism and a kind of removed form of politics? To what extent do you think Brexit has acted as a corrective to that? And to what extent do you think it was a conscious effort by the British public to put politics back on a more sensible democratic level? Well, I think it's it's not exactly a knockout punch for the kind of uh, elite and ultra-liberals we're talking about, but it is probably a kind of winding blow to the stomach. It's sort of shocked them and it's sort of stopped them in their tracks a little bit. But I think we're yet to see whether it will really deliver a kind of lasting corrective in the way that we're governed and the political parties work. I mean, in a way, I think the European Union is a sort of case study and the kinds of things we're talking about you know, the the sort of ultra-liberal right loved the European Union because it was about, you know, transnational marketization without really having to have any kind of democratic debate about its desirability. And the ultra-liberal left loved it because it was about eroding the nation state, eroding the kind of national institutions and celebrating sort of transnational citizenship rights and things like that. Where I think, you know, as you said, the majority of voters confirmed this in June 2016, didn't they? But I think a lot of a lot of people really lamented that and wanted the nation state back in their lives. And the nation state matters because it's the political unit 
where there is a real connection and political identity and people you know feel a sense of shared citizenship and connection with their fellow citizens from the same country and a set of shared values to some degree values obviously do conflict sometimes but a country uh, will broadly have sort of values and interests and institutions that people can share in and that sort of shared identity is what makes solidarity possible it's what makes people want to make sacrifices for others and this is one of the funny things that the left never seems to understand but if you want the solidarity that makes things like universal public services and redistributive taxes possible then you need to defend the sense of community that the nation state gives you It strikes me that one of the more interesting things about the response to Brexit is that both sections of the right and sections of the left profoundly misunderstood it, and they misunderstood why people voted for it. So on the left, we had the familiar response of saying people had been brainwashed or were behaving in a racist way or a xenophobic way and so on. But even among sections of the right who were quite favourable towards Brexit. I think there was a misunderstanding of it as a strike for free markets or as a strike for Singapore on the Thames, liberalising the economy and getting away from the kind of terrible drag of EU restrictions on economic life. Both sides, I think, missed a trick. I, I want to kick off with the typically leftish response, which wasn't confined to the left, but it was most pronounced on the left. This notion that Voters didn't know what they were doing. They were ill-informed. They were stupid. They were prejudiced. To what extent do you think that will have a lasting impact on how ordinary voters view the left-leaning elites and conceive of their relationship with them? Well, I think it's certainly among the biggest early challenges that Keir Starmer has as the new leader of the Labour Party. I mean, he has to try to assemble an election-winning coalition of voters when Labour has already lost large parts of Scotland, almost all of Scotland, and it lost lots of seats in the North and Midlands of England and in Wales, the so-called red wall seats. And one of the reasons they lost in those red wall seats is precisely what you're describing. It was this sense of, we know better than you do. You've just been deceived, and that was why you made this stupid decision. And we're here to save you from your own stupidity. And unsurprisingly, people didn't like that very much. And I think the reason the Brexit referendum has been such a shock to the party political system is, is that for many of our general elections, the choices on offer to the public have been about socioeconomic issues. And the Brexit referendum was the first time, certainly in my lifetime, I think that the country was asked to consider a question which was one of culture and identity. And that's one of the reasons why it cut through both parties' electoral coalitions. And it came as a nasty shock, precisely because, actually, I think politicians hadn't wanted to either ask or listen to the answer on these kinds of issues before, mainly because they they had rather different opinions to the people they were relying to put them in Parliament. Yeah, absolutely. On the right-wing side, one of the things I have found frustrating as a pretty ardent Brexiteer when I've attended Brexit meetings or Brexit rallies and so on, I often 
bump into right-leaning supporters of Brexit who I also think misunderstand it as an effort to, you know, liberate market forces even more than they already are. Now, have you found that too? I mean, you've been in many senses at the coalface of pushing back against that and arguing that we don't need to shrink the state. Uh, we don't need to cut public spending. These are not things that the Conservatives should necessarily focus on. Have you, in the circles you've been moving in over the past few years, found a, a right-wing misunderstanding of Brexit alongside the left-wing misunderstanding? Yeah, hugely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a subscriber and a big fan of The Spectator, but I remember not long after the Brexit referendum, they had a front page which was the wrong Brexit. <laughs> and I remember sort of laughing to myself and thinking, well, you know, if you'd been promoting the sort of Singapore on Thames model of Brexit, they'd have probably lost like 80-20 or something like that. Because the overwhelming majority of people who voted for Brexit were doing so because they wanted the nation state back in their lives and they, and they wanted to feel the sense of community that the nation state gives. And that means, you know, solidarity, sacrifice for one another, support for one another, and not more exposure to global market forces. And I thought Danny Kruger, the newly elected Tory MP, in his maiden speech put it very well when he said, if, you know, if you want to understand Brexit, it's all about the call of home. It's all about the places in which we live that go from the suburb you live in or the village you live in to the city or the county through to the country. And it's that great chain of relationships, which I don't know if he was doing it consciously or not, but Burke writes about this, this chain of relationships from our immediate families through to the nation that makes social life possible. I now want to ask you about your own personal experiences in the aftermath of the, of the vote for Brexit, because of course, you were a co-chief of staff in Downing Street under Theresa May. And you mentioned this in the book. So I want to kick off with this question, really, in terms of how peculiar was it? You voted for Brexit. You were chief of staff to a prime minister who ended up being responsible for a period of time for implementing Brexit, but who was a Remainer and who I think it's fair to say has a more technocratic approach to politics than might be desirable among Brexit supporters. Could you just describe for us what that tension was like? Was it a pronounced tension to be trying to push forward Brexit within a Downing Street that had its fair share of Remainers and its fair share of people of the technocratic style? Or was there a genuine sense that it had to be done and a, a way had to be found? What was it like in that moment? It actually really varied. So to be honest, I've criticised the way Theresa turned after the 2017 election and, and sort of sought a much softer Brexit. But at the time I was in Downing Street, you know, behind closed doors in the meetings, you know, the very intimate meetings of just a few of us, the meetings with larger groups of officials and ministers, I was always totally convinced of her seriousness in terms of delivering a real Brexit. So, you know, I remember there were occasions where There'd be special pleading from officials or ministers from a particular department where I said, we really need to still be in this particular EU scheme. And she'd sort of do her sort of school marmish thing and sort of pull off her glasses and sort of wave them at whoever was talking and say, no, you don't understand. We've got, we're going to leave the EU in its entirety. We're going to be completely out. We can't be controlled by its laws or institutions because that's what leaving means. We can then negotiate a relationship that is close 
and that you know, helps to keep our economy strong. But that must be done in a way that is completely consistent with what people voted for. And that's why we've got to leave all the laws and institutions, which I was, you know, as a, as a Brexiteer, I was always very happy about. That matched my view of what Brexit means. And I have no reason to think it wasn't sincere. So in that year, I think she was trying to do what I would say as a Brexiteer was the right thing. I also remember being quite impressed quite early on by the way in which some of the senior civil servants, Jeremy Hayward in particular, actually you know, shifted from having sort of led the civil service that had been partly supporting, let's be honest, the Remain campaign to embracing the reality that Brexit was going to be the policy of the government. I think the problem lay with, I think quite a lot of the ministers saw it as a problem. Certainly Philip Hammond never really had any interest in, I think, pursuing anything that amounted to anything that the public would have recognised as Brexit. I remember conversations about trying to do consultations on things like, you know, the future of the regulation of financial services to sort of see, you know, what opportunities there might be, what the industry actually wanted, show the Europeans that we were serious about going our own way. And he just point blank refused to do that kind of thing. And there were other ministers too. And I think in the civil service itself, I don't know, I, I think, you know, the civil service generally actually does try to implement the policies of the government. There will be some individuals that don't like them and maybe go slow or that kind of thing. I've certainly told one or two stories about senior civil servants. Well, there was one where there'd been a meeting of some very senior civil servants and one of them sidled up to my source who said, and this was a few months after the referendum, who said, you know what, I've been thinking about this quite a lot and I think we're going to have to do it <laughs> because he'd obviously thought it was a serious option to entertain that we, we might somehow manage to completely overturn this referendum result a few months later. But actually, you know, I think, I think those are kind of extreme examples. They do reflect the views of some people in the civil service. But I think in that year, the machine was probably trying. But I think lots of the mistakes that were made, and, you know, I made mistakes in that period too, perhaps exemplify a sort of a lack of imagination for how life can be lived outside certain ideological or philosophical premises. On that point, or around that point, I wanted to ask you about what you refer to as the catastrophe in your book, which was the election result in 2017, which obviously changed the country, changed your life, the hung parliament. That's a moment in British politics that it's really worth thinking about because it came quite soon after an incredibly enthusiastic vote for Brexit, a very high turnout, 52% in favour of Brexit, a lot of political engagement. I think that period of the referendum is now misremembered as a, as a period of misinformation and myths and lies. Completely untrue. There was a huge amount of discussion in many parts of the public sphere, at work, at bus stops, in pubs. I said on any questions that I heard people talking about the single market at a bus stop and no one on the panel believed me, but it's completely and utterly true. So we go from a very engaged political moment in 2016, which various political forces could quite easily have capitalized on or pushed forward or turned into something solid. But Theresa May failed to do that because in 2017, there was the disastrous hung parliament. And you describe really well in the opening section of your book, just how devastating that was to Theresa May and the people around Theresa May. What do you think were 
the core failures, the core failure to get a majority government to see through such a popular measure as Brexit and instead ending up with a hung parliament and the disaster of the Remainer parliament for, for two years? Well, we've only got a limited amount of time uh, <laughs> and there's a lot to talk about in terms of things that went wrong. Um, I mean, one thing that is sometimes said, which I strongly disagree with, is that the election was unnecessary. The election itself was necessary. We had a majority of about a dozen, there were God knows how many dozens of Remainer Tories who were mighty upset about what had happened. And Every single vote we had in Parliament relating to Brexit was was on a knife edge. And we didn't lose any, partly because we had a canny chief whip in Gavin Williamson, but, you know, partly because even he just succeeded by just cancelling votes a lot of the time, to be honest. It was quite clear that we weren't going to be able to get serious votes through that. And I remember I had, I had a conversation with Theresa about an early election during the leadership election campaign, and she wasn't very interested in it. And... The team of close advisors around her, I think, were, I think, sort of grew in, in our view that an election was needed. Among the many mistakes that then came, the first was the timing. So Theresa was reluctant to do it. She, she ended up thinking that she would need to do it. I think my personal memory was that it was the day Article 50 was triggered and she made a statement in the House and the atmosphere was really uneasy in the Commons. Really strange moment, I think. I think the mood of the House was the thing that tipped her over the edge and she realised that uh, she wouldn't have the support behind her to get it done. But by then, I think we sort of surrendered a lot of the opportunity of an early election. So so not only had she been saying for ages she didn't want to call one, <laughs> so breaking that kind of promise uh, looked a little dishonest. We then ended up with a really long period before prorogation. We ended up with the five weeks of campaigning that the Fixed Term Parliaments Act sets out. So we, it was basically the longest lasting snap election in political history. And it came after the local election results in May, which you know, people, don't, people don't really like voting unnecessarily. We're asking them to vote twice in a month. And then during the campaign itself, we just, we basically, I think, screwed everything up. I mean, we, the political team in number 10, had been pursuing the strategy, which was about being resolutely pro-Brexit, but also recognising that, in some respects, the Brexit vote was a vote for change, was a vote for help for some communities, more active government. We were trying to pitch the Tory party much more on the side of working-class people, talking about class, uh, which is pretty unusual for uh, a Conservative to do. So we, we were putting ourselves on the side of change. And if you remember back to that period, it was actually enormously popular. It's, um, she had unbelievable approval ratings and a massive lead going into the election, which was thanks to that political strategy, I think. And then we ended up pursuing a different strategy for the campaign, perversely. The campaign was run by Linton Crosby and Mark Texter, the consultants, and Stephen Gilbert came in too. I looked after policy, Fiona looked after communications. And effectively what happened, I think, was the consultants ran their campaign. <laughs> Never a good idea to have two strategies or two campaigns in one, but we did. The consultants effectively ran a kind of steady-as-she-goes kind of campaign, and we were still running a kind of change campaign, which was a pretty bad mixed message. And then lots of other things went wrong too. So, you know, obviously the manifesto went wrong, and I co-authored the manifesto. I think we communicated some of the policies in the manifesto very badly. I remember there was sort of one occasion where I realised that somebody was briefing the social care policy as though it 
Uh, it meant a cap of £100,000 rather than a floor of £100,000 towards social care costs, which is obviously a bit of a nightmare in the middle of a, the cut and thrust of an election campaign. Theresa was incredibly wooden. And I think her sort of limited communication skills really sort of weighed against her. You know, we got hit by events. There were two terror attacks. There was a massive NHS cyber attack. And at that point, Labour managed to convince a lot of their voters that they were going to respect the referendum result. And I think if you talk to some of the Labour MPs who held onto their seats, who are no fans of Jeremy Corbyn, they said that they felt they hung on a lot of the time because the country knew that they weren't, or believed they weren't going to get Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. They knew that Theresa would be Prime Minister, but they didn't want to trust the Tories with a massive majority and so wanted to vote for their local Labour MP. So I think all of these things kind of came together. And you know, I think we still got the highest vote share uh, the Tories had won since 83. I think it was the second highest number of votes ever recorded. We got sort of a net extra two and a half million votes. But because the Labour vote surged as well, it meant that they made up more ground than we took. So we, were, we ended up back with a hung parliament and that was the end of my Downing Street career. One of the great shames of that election is that the promise of what subsequently happened, which was the shift of some working class voters, huge numbers of working class voters now, towards the Tories, you could see the promise of that in 2017. Even in working class seats that Labour held on to, there were swings to the Conservative Party. And as you say, some Labour voters voted for Corbyn, not because they wanted him to be Prime Minister, but because they knew Theresa May would carry on. So the beginnings of that revolution, as it has been referred to, the December 2019 revolution, which I want to ask you about shortly, you could see it in, in that election, but it just wasn't pushed over the edge. Something was clearly missing. And one thing I want to ask you about is the thing that irritated me most about that election campaign was the slogan, strong and stable, because I, I don't think you came up with that, did you? No, <laughs> no good. Because... I just thought it was wrong on so many levels. Now, in one sense, it's just three words, but even that word stable, I think, was so wrong because it touches upon something that you've just said there, which is that I think there are elements in the political class that underestimate how radical the vote for Brexit was and how much it was about changing politics, not simply about regaining sovereign power from Brussels, but shaking up politics in the United Kingdom itself and the sclerotic, increasingly bureaucratic, out-of-touch state, and the question of how that could be brought much further down to people's level and how it could be utilised to make community life and, and people's lives better. And the word stable just struck me as grating against that desire for some kind of shift, some kind of earthquake, some kind of change in how people experience political life. So you've just said there that there was a woodenness in Theresa May's approach, but to what extent do you think that speaks to a misunderstanding beyond Theresa May herself and within the broader establishment, a misunderstanding of the more radical component of Brexit and a desire to keep things going as best as possible, even in the face of such a historic democratic vote? Yeah, I mean, I think in a way, the, the slogan basically sums up what I mean about the clash of the two strategies, because you know, we'd consciously tried to put ourselves on the side of change. You know, we were talking about, you know, this is the Conservative Party, and we were talking about industrial strategy and workers on boards and reversing elements of the internal market and the NHS and 
and intervening in markets so they worked more fairly and and so on. And I think we really, I think in that period, we did convey a strong sense of change. Whether we would have been able to implement a lot of those changes is a different matter because you know we didn't have a mandate to do some of them. We had only a very small majority and there were some sceptics in the Tory party. So we would have needed, I think, an election to do some of those things. But we, nevertheless, we did really convey that. And then in the campaign itself, the second of the two strategies was strong and stable. And the problem with strong and stable is, you know, it's not inspiring. It's not about change. It's more of the same. People had actually, you know, one year before voted against more of the same, yet here we were offering more of the same. A lot of the policy stuff that she wanted a mandate for was actually new and didn't really go with strong and stable. And then ultimately, if you screw things up in a campaign, as we did a few different times, strong and stable, it does not look. So it's probably the worst possible slogan we could have, we could have used. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I want to talk to you about what happened after the catastrophe. You, You went your own way and did many, many good things. Were you as shocked as... I was, and many other people were, by what happened to Parliament subsequent to that. Because even now, when I look back, and it's only very recently, when I look back at how Parliament behaved in the period from 2017 to 2019, where pretty much nothing got done, everything was devoted towards the question of how we could frustrate Brexit or soften Brexit or weaken Brexit or, you know, subject it to another referendum, i.e. stitch it up. That struck a lot of people, and I know this from talking to various people around the country, particularly at Brexit rallies, so these are Brexit-leaning people, that struck people as a historic betrayal of ordinary people and their votes. And I wonder, did you have the same view of it? And to what extent do you think that the thing you've criticised in Theresa May after 2017, which was her attempt to soften Brexit, to what extent do you think that acted as a green light or maybe a red rag to a bull in terms of bringing out the more anti-democratic parts of Parliament who who sniffed an opportunity to be able to do Brexit over? Was it a surprise or was it not a surprise? I mean, I'd seen close up the behaviour of some of those MPs and the Labour Party. And let's remember Keir Starmer was the shadow Brexit secretary at the time, in my time in Downing Street. And that was one of the reasons why it seemed so clear to me and to others around me that an election was inevitable even at that stage. So I don't think I was surprised that people behaved badly. There was a need for a mandate and a proper majority to break through that kind of behaviour. And, you know, having worked in politics for nearly two decades, I, you know, I I know the depths (laughs) that some will succumb to in order to try to get their way. But even I was surprised by just how flagrant it was. I don't know whether that really is down to Theresa trying to soften Brexit. I think it may be partly down to the indecision of the government, where it was clear that policy wasn't really being set by ministers. It was being really, I really, it looked like the government was trying to aim for a midpoint between 
the two angriest factions in the hope that somehow that would get through. And I mean, it would never seemed likely that a deal could get through to me because as soon as as soon as Theresa had alienated a big faction of the Tory party, it was quite clear that Labour would have an excuse to vote against it. Because if they could say, well, if even the Tory Brexiteers say this isn't Brexit, you can't really say we're voting against Brexit. But I think, the, you know, to, to go back to the conduct of some of the rebels, and in particular, you know, John Burko's speaker, I mean, Burko really is the symbol of that period, I think. And I think it will be remembered as the unloved or maybe unlovable parliament. I mean, it really was a disgrace. People weren't even trying to hide what they were doing. You know, it was very clear they were trying to overturn a democratic vote that hadn't yet been implemented. Okay, so if we fast forward to December 2019, something happens that I'm sure you would like to have happened when when you were in Downing Street. Would have been nice. which Which was the unprecedented victory for Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party, very much on the back of working class voters and the kind of people that you, in fact, had been talking about and seeking to appeal to. Now, you strike me as quite a humble person, so maybe you won't go so far But to what as, as this, but to what extent do you agree with those who say that Boris's success was built on the kind of ideas that you had been pushing, often against people who <laughs> didn't like them very much, in the sense of turning the Conservative Party towards working class communities, towards being not necessarily a small state party, not necessarily a party opposed to public spending, being a party that's devoted to implementing Brexit and to implementing the ideas that float around Brexit. A lot of that echoes, I think, the kind of arguments you had been making. Is that something that you you recognise? Well, I think I'll leave other people think about me. I'll try to take myself out of it. I mean, I think it's definitely the case that in 2017, we came a quite close second in a lot of those Red Wall constituencies. So, you know, I just said, I think that we picked up a net extra two and a half million votes. And, you know, that's where those votes came from. And yet, you know, it wasn't quite enough, but it was a platform for next time around. And that is, that is definitely true. Obviously, a platform is sort of necessary but not sufficient. So, uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly arguing that sort of Theresa won Boris's uh, <laughs> election for him <laughs> or anything like that, because clearly I think if, uh, if Theresa had led the party into the next election, uh, we'd have gone backwards in a lot of those places. I think Boris did the rational thing as leader. You know, I'm not entirely certain Boris you know, believes in his bones in a kind of conservatism that is you know, much more interventionist and is is much more interested in working class people in places like Dudley and Derby in the way that I do. But that doesn't matter. He he saw, I think, that the Tory party had to own Brexit, had to deliver Brexit, and if they didn't, they would be killed. He was a leader of the Leave campaign, so a spokesman for Brexit. Those things all meant that he was going to lose a certain number of voters who were, you know, Remainers, former Tories, in more prosperous parts of the country, generally speaking. So he had to build an electoral coalition that would get him over the line. And the only place he could go, consistent with being the party that owns Brexit and was delivering Brexit, were those Red Wall constituencies. And so the pitch to them was, you know, partly, we talked about socioeconomic and cultural and identity questions earlier, it was partly a kind of cultural pitch, like, you know, get Brexit done. And it was reassuring in a kind of socioeconomic one, you know, I'm not going to, 
cut your public services. I'm not going to screw working class families like yours. Now, that was enough in 2019, fortunately, and it got him his majority. To me, the really interesting question now is, what can the Tories do to solidify this new electoral coalition? Brexit may or may not be a live issue next time around. Let's hope it's not. <laughs> uh, let's hope it's done. Uh, there will be Brexit-related issues that are still live, like trade deals and so on. So there are some other options on cultural dividing lines that can be set with Labour, like law and order, immigration, human rights law. Keir Starmer is a human rights lawyer. It would be very surprising to me if the Tories didn't make those kinds of arguments. But it may not be enough next time around, especially if we've had a bad recession, to pitch to those voters on cultural matters. They have to also make a pitch on economic issues. And that means the Tory party will have to move towards the left on the economy. And Boris has done that so far in particular ways. He's interested in borrowing more to spend more on infrastructure and to invest in the regions. He's promised more spending on core public services like schools, hospitals, and the police. But there's going to be quite a lot of other questions, especially as we go through a period of unemployment and recession, which you know we're yet to see whether the party will answer in what I would say is the correct way. But it's going to, I think it's going to have to embrace active government. You know, in the way that it has through the, the pandemic, it's been highly interventionist in propping up the economy during the lockdown. It's going to have to be much more interventionist and much, much more active uh, in the future as we go through recovery and beyond. I mean, there is so much discussion now about the changing nature of the Conservative Party and even discussion about it being a working class party or, or the party specifically that, that represents working class people more than, than Labour does. To what extent do you think this is a radical transformation of the Conservative Party and of the Labour Party? Because to some people, there does seem to have been a pretty dramatic shift. Of course, the, the Conservative Party is currently a coalition of various different strata of society. And it looks to be a fairly manageable coalition for the time being, although tensions may well flare up at some point. So you have the Conservative Party, which is attracting the votes of people whose communities had voted Labour for decades and decades. You have the Labour Party becoming an increasingly metropolitan affair, an increasingly middle class affair. As you say, it's now run by a human rights lawyer who was the author of Labour's pretty disastrous Brexit policy and, and the second referendum idea, which was really deeply offensive to many working class voters in the North and the Midlands and elsewhere. Are we witnessing a historic switcheroo, a complete shift of who the parties represent and what the parties stand for? Or do you see this as a return to an older form of conservatism? And maybe it's just the Labour Party that has become something that it's not supposed to be. I'd actually say yes to both of those questions. I'm not sure they're mutually exclusive. So it feels to me like we are experiencing a realignment. It's felt like that to me for some way. Uh, we, you know, I, we thought we could ride the tiger of the realignment and, uh, and got eaten. But nonetheless, that realignment, I think, is real. I think, you know, some people think that, you know, with the virus, the lockdown and the economic costs that we're about to live through, things might return to normal, normal as they see it. I'm doubtful about that. What, one of the reasons for that is the shift in the core votes of the two main parties, it hasn't happened for no reason. It's not, a, it's not just a strange coincidence. It's actually happening right across the West, where left-wing parties are 
picking up more votes from sort of university towns, uh, from the big cities, the inner cities, more public sector workers, more ethnic minorities. The parties on the right are tending to pick up more support from suburbs, towns. Their support is more provincial. It's slightly poorer than historically the centre-right votes have been. This isn't happening for no reason. It's happening partly because, I think, of the way left-wing politics is changing. Uh, you know, the left is, is rejecting the, the sense of community and national solidarity that many of its former voters, its, its white working-class voters, celebrate. Uh, and that's actually driven them to centre-right parties. Now, some people think that might break because future elections might suddenly be decided only on an economic basis and not a cultural one. I don't see any evidence, really, that cultural divides are weakening. They seem to be strengthening. You only have to see the way people are arguing about the lockdown. You know, the, the divides in opinions quite often reflect the leave-remain divides because they, they, in some respects, represent divides in values. So I think, I think the realignment is real, and I think it's probably still underway. Now, does that make for a fundamentally different Conservative Party? Actually, there's a long tradition in the Conservative Party, you know, the one-nation tradition we talked about, that I think um, would recognise this kind of electoral coalition and would feel pretty comfortable with it um, if you, you know, if Disraeli could in any way understand the modern world. Uh, <laughs> I think he would recognise what's going on with the Tory vote right now. I think my old hero, Joseph Chamberlain, was not a Conservative, but he propped up the Conservatives, I think he would think along similar lines, so would Harold Macmillan. It's only really over the last 30, 40 years that the Tory party has become much more ideologically, economically liberal, that it started to struggle with some of the voters we're talking about. Yes, very interesting. I agree on the the non-weakening of cultural divides. I think, if anything, they're becoming more and more important, which is not to say that the socio-economic issues won't also become more important, particularly in the post-pandemic moment. My final question, which you've just touched upon there, is the question of the pandemic. It's far too large a question to answer in one go, but we'll give it a whirl. You've spoken about the possibility that the pandemic will, instead of going back to the old normal, will actually energise the desire for solidarity, energise people's sense that community and society are very important things. I feel slightly torn on this issue because on the one hand, I tend to agree that the kinds of politics that people like you and I are interested in will probably be bolstered in some way by this process. But another part of me thinks that we are living through a a moment of such extreme atomization, the breaking down of the public sphere, essentially, in order to keep people away from each other for the period of the pandemic, that it could possibly wound that sense of solidarity that had built up over the past four years, and particularly in the wake of Boris's election victory. So where do you currently stand? Are you optimistic about the, obviously the pandemic is a terrible thing for the United Kingdom to be going through, but in the aftermath of it, are you optimistic that the kind of political ideas you are keen on will still get a good hearing and could possibly survive and thrive after this crisis? Well, I, I mean, I hope so. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the real lived experience for tens of millions of people in an experience like this will differ. And you know, these days we sort of romanticise the blitz spirit, which we often compare the experience of the pandemic to. But of course, you know, during the blitz, there was looting, there were break-ins, there were all sorts of different crimes. But we, we really remember the, sort of the solidarity of that period because you know, that is actually 
I think, what lots of people felt, that we sort of created a national myth about it, which actually was a good thing. I think national stories help us to be better than we would otherwise be. I'm not one of these people who sneers at British exceptionalism or whatever. So, of course, people are going to have different experiences of, of the pandemic and the lockdown, and there'll have been some sort of curtain twitchers complaining that some people were breaking the rules and things like that. But I think the story we end up telling about this period will matter. And and overall, the big facts of the pandemic, I think, have been that the government did everything it could to protect firms in trouble, did everything it could to keep people paid while they were economically inactive to a very high percentage of their normal income, extraordinary and unprecedented by British standards. So there's a high degree of government intervention. There was also an extraordinary sense of community in the way that business came forward to start making PPE, or regardless of whether the ventilator challenge worked or not, people responded to it. We also had you know, hundreds of thousands of people volunteering to support the NHS. By and large, people have tried to do the responsible thing, and they've tried to do the responsible thing because they care about you know, the elderly and the vulnerable and other members of society. So so overall, I would characterise it as an experience of solidarity and active government. And I think, you know, if people think that after this, the Conservative Party could sort of go back to the politics and economics and language of individualism and economic liberalism or even austerity, after, after they've talked about this collective national effort <laughs> and said that, you know, we all stand together. I think that's crazy. I don't think there's any way the Conservative Party can afford to do that. Uh, and I don't really see any sign that it will. Nick Timothy, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.